Well, good morning. Will you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude? If you're relatively new to the scriptures, you go all the way to the back of your Bible. It's the book right before the final book, book of Revelation. If you're flipping too fast, you might miss it. Jude is, to call it a book, it's, I mean, it's a letter. To call it a book would be somewhat generous. It's maybe take up a page, maybe a page and a half in your Bibles. We're going to be focusing on verses 24 and 25. It's a great privilege to be with you. It's a joy to be with you, um, actually. Uh, last year, my wife and I did one of the hardest things that we've ever done in our married life. We sent our firstborn daughter 16 hours away to, to go to school, uh, where she attends college at uh, Lancaster Bible College. And um, one, of all the things that we worry about and pray for, for her, that she would be safe where she is, that she would be happy where she is, and uh, succeed at school. Uh, one of the things that we prayed for quite earnestly is that she would find a, a church home that felt like family and where she could hear the gospel preached uh, regularly. And she's found that here. And so I just um, am grateful to you for being uh, a place like that. And um, um, I thank God for you. So it's, it is a joy to be able to share with you this morning. This letter from Jesus's brother, Jude, is short, uh, but it's actually pretty complex. And in fact, reading through it, we're not going to read the whole letter, but there is some darkness in here, quite vivid illustrations, a very poetic contrast um, that is there without paying close attention. In fact, um, it can be difficult in reading Jude to find good news in it. Uh, but through all the serious warnings and even the mysterious theology, there's some little, you know, uh, kind of perplexing pieces of theology or history, um, even in the short book, Jude is essentially building up to this climactic prayer. Throughout the letter, Jude has been pushing us Godward, kind of telling us about the dangers of keeping our eyes on ourselves or on the ground and, and raising our gaze up kind of bit by bit. The letter is really sort of like, uh, you know, Jude's literary way of kind of putting his fist under our chin to kind of lift our heads up to look up to the glory of Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we reach the highest heights in Jude 24 and 25, which is an exclamation of worship traditionally called a doxology. Let's look at this together. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word. Help us to treasure it above all things, and through it, of course, your Son, above all, help us to receive a fresh glimpse of him and of his glory by which we can be changed. And we pray all these things in his name, the name of Christ. Amen. The word uh, doxology comes from a medieval Latin word, which in turn came from two Greek words, doxa, which means glory, and logos, or logos, which means words. And you put those together, of course, and you have doxology, which literally means words of glory or a word of glory. It's an, uh, essentially an ascription of glory. It's an assigning of worship to someone, in this case, of course, God. 
Maybe you sing the traditional doxology hymn here at church. At, at my last church that I pastored in Vermont, we sang the doxology every week at the close of our service, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Why do we do that? Some people would say, why do we do that every week? We sing the exact same song. And someone would say, well, it's just tradition. It's just what we do without any perhaps meaning behind it. It's the repetition of it. Um, others maybe just have no idea. But the reason we would close our service with doxology is the same reason Jude closes his letter with a doxology. And it's basically this. The glory of God deserves our utmost attention because it is the highest and best good. And because nothing is more important, nothing is more important than that our lives are oriented around the glory of God. So a doxology is how we pledge allegiance to the maker of our souls, to the savior of our souls and the keeper of our souls. And doxologies can change people. Words of glory change people. Perhaps the greatest American theologian of all time, Jonathan Edwards, was uh, about 18 years old when feeling the pressure to study certain things and follow a certain career trajectory from his family, going to a certain job field. He was just reading his Bible one day, minding his own business, when the doxology of 1 Timothy 1.17 fell into his soul. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what Edward says about that moment. He says, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words. As I read the words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. And I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. Doxologies change people. And my hope and prayer is that Jude's doxology will give you a new sense of the glory of the divine being this very morning. We're going to look at three God-centered truths from these two verses that bring the weight of glory to our minds and, I hope, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to our hearts as well. I'm going to give them to you briefly. The first one is this. Only God gives spiritual security. Only God gives spiritual security. Secondly, only God gives eternal forgiveness. Only God gives eternal forgiveness. And then thirdly, only God is God. Only God is is God. These three points cover aspects of the weightiness of the reality of God that Jude is bringing to bear. Security, forgiveness, God's own godness, as it were, these correspond to God's dominion, his majesty, his authority, and his ultimate glory. So let's begin with number one. Only God gives spiritual security. Only God gives spiritual security. You and I are hopelessly lost without God. There is no security to be found in the things that we most often treasure. We might think, well, I'm young and I'm healthy, but young, healthy people die every day, don't they? We might think I'm rich or I'm talented or I have a lot of experience, but 
These are temporary things that pass away, that cannot buy us the security that we really need. The healthiest, strongest, smartest, richest, most beautiful among us, apart from God, is on the most dangerous ground that they could be on. Jude 24, the first part. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is an echo of verse 1. If you have the Bible open, you can see where Jude makes reference to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Kept. There is an external force involved that must be involved if we are to be secure. And the kind of stumbling that Jude is referring to here is not simply about making mistakes uh, you know, flaws and uh, minor failures, stumbling that way. He's talking about falling into lostness, staying in lostness. And when something else becomes our hope or our satisfaction, it becomes our sense of security. Left to my own devices, to my own authority, to my own wisdom, I will fall again and again because even the strongest person in this room is utterly weak compared to God. So we shouldn't find our security in anyone or anything but him. Were it not for God, we would be falling from grace every second. Sometimes it takes something rather large to remind us of our frailty. I've lived in Kansas City for six years. I'm not from the Midwest. I'm new to the Midwest. A lot of things in the Midwest take some getting used to. One of those is the wind. The wind never stops. They don't say it's a windy day in Kansas City. They just say it's a day in Kansas City. And you just expect there's the wind. I lived in Vermont prior to moving to Kansas City. It gets a lot colder in Vermont than it does in Kansas City. But with the wind, right, it makes it a lot worse. It feels like it's cutting into you. But I'll take the still cold of Vermont over the windy cold of Kansas City any day. When I landed Friday in Philadelphia, the, the wind was, I thought, did we even leave? Uh, I think we just turned around and came back where I came from. The most startling example I can think of, just like getting used to the weather there, um, about two or three years ago, I was driving home from work. My wife asked if I would stop at the store and pick something up. And uh, so, you know, I went to the Walmart as one does. And the, my first indication that something was wrong was when I walked out of the store and everyone outside was stopped and looking up at the sky. That's not a good thing, right? It means like there's an alien invasion maybe. Um, or something very weird is going on. I thought, what? And so I looked up at the sky, and it, you know, it didn't look right. The sky did not look right. Strange colors. There was a weird cloud formation that I'd never seen before coming in. I thought, I need to hurry and get home. So I got in my car, got on the rural highway, trying to drive to our uh, town north of Kansas City, and the wind picked up and was getting worse and worse and worse, and I'm struggling to keep the car on the highway, and then the rain is picking up, and it's blinding rain, like, like torrential rain, and then the rain's going sideways, and then there's a small hail that's falling now onto the car, and I can barely see. You can see maybe like six to ten feet maybe in front. It's that, it's that stark, and I'm getting more and more nervous, and eventually I can't see. I'm afraid I'm going to hit someone in front of me because I don't know. I, you just can't see. So I pulled over to the side of the road, and then my phone buzzes, and I look down, and the alert is, tornado warning in your area, take cover immediately. And I'm in the middle of the highway. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I remember, I, I, you know, growing up as a kid, and they would tell you what to do when a tornado came. And I lived in a place where tornadoes never happened. So I thought, what is, this is useless information. I don't know if that's common core or what that is, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I vividly remember little drawings of kids in ditches. Get in the ditch. And I'm like, oh, I need a ditch. Can I find a ditch around 
to hide in. Um, all I can think of is like, this is it. This is how, this is how it's going to end. So I don't know what to do. I, I can't find a ditch. Uh, I, you know, I changed to the Christian radio station uh, just so I could like, you know, I just, I'm thinking like, how do I want to be found? Right. That's the thing. That's a, not with, probably not with Leonard Skinner playing or something like that. Um, and man, it was so nerve wracking. And the longer I sat there and the, and, and the worse it got, the more vulnerable I felt. And all I could think of was a car may come up from behind me and smash into me because they can't see either. And I think I probably should press forward. So driving like 10, 15 miles an hour on the highway, I'm just moving forward and forward. And it took me forever, it seemed like. By the time I got to our town, things had calmed down a little bit, but the, the, the streets were flooded. People were pushing their cars out of the road. And by the time I pulled into our driveway and got into uh, our house, I was just shaking. My, you know, my hands were clenched on that steering wheel and my whole body was shaking. I felt totally at the mercy of nature in that moment. I didn't watch the sheer force of it overwhelm me on a YouTube video or, or, or anything like that. I experienced it through a thin sheet of glass in my windshield, inside the, the frail metal of my car. That storm, in essence, put me in my place. Maybe for you, the storm that constantly puts you in your place isn't some kind of physical thing. Maybe it's just a spiritual thing. There are sins, perhaps, that make you feel vulnerable, temptations that constantly seem to lay in wait for you, and you keep going back to these things. You feel totally helpless against sexual immorality or pornography or, or gossip or lying, and you can't figure out why you're continually drawn to those things like a moth to the flame. And something else has basically become your security. You've taken your eyes off God and you're afraid the stumbling is now going to define you forever. You feel maybe like Paul in Romans 7, the good I know to do, I end up not doing. And the things I know not to do, I find myself doing that over and over again. Who's going to rescue me? And you see how utterly weak you are and how impossible it is to find spiritual security in your own strength. You need God. Only He is able to keep us from stumbling. And when you tap into that security, when you're mindful of that security, when you're aware of that security, the change it makes in terms of your own vulnerability and weakness is astounding. There's a Romanian pastor, Joseph Zahn, who was recounting a time that he was being interrogated, essentially tortured by six men. This is what he said to one of them. What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do, and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my God. Every day, he said, I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. He said later, during an early interrogation, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. <laughs> Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. 
Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Zahn would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. He said, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I'd been afraid of dying. I kept a low profile. Because I wanted badly to live, I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they're telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. There's a Bible verse about that. See, men like this are are free to live like this because they realize the world is not what they make of it, and it's certainly not what sin or the devil makes of it, but because they realize that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Joseph Zahn realized only God gives spiritual security. His captors might have killed him, but God had secured his soul, and they couldn't take that away. Reminds me of Martin Luther. He said, let him take my head. God will give me a new one. Wow, that's pretty bold. How could you say something like that? Our souls are starving for this. They are starving for this right now. Whether you realize it or not, actually, do not put your hope in anything but God. Only he is able to keep you. And when you have committed your life to Christ, he holds you in his hand and nothing and no one can snatch you out. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This spiritual security is maintained forever, in fact. Thus, secondly, only God gives eternal forgiveness. Only God gives eternal forgiveness. You and I are not born with blank slates. We are born needing to be forgiven. Sometimes people say these things. Well, you know, the sin stuff, it comes in. We're, we're corrupted by uh, our circumstances or by the environment. And certainly the environments that we grow up in, they shape us, they influence, they can steer us in certain ways. But we are born with the sin inside. We are born with a sin nature. Anyone who doesn't think this has never been around small children. You saw little kids throw temper tantrums. They learned that. I mean, maybe they did. If they're learning that from you, you need some help. If, like, if, if you're a grown person and you don't get your way, you throw yourself on the floor and kick your legs, there's probably something wrong with you. But you can tell just by the way little kids react and, and, and act that no one taught them to do that. They come by it naturally. My younger daughter, Grace, uh, when she was little, she was, it, it, it's strange now because um, she's 16 years old. She's like borderline Pharisee now, which is interesting because when she was young, she, she was the prodigal when she was little. Now she's the older brother in some sense. Uh, but when she was little, um, you know, she always had to be kind of um, uh, uh, res- restrained. Can I say that in here? Restrained? Uh, constrained? Confined? Um, but there were things that she did, I just, it just blew my mind, like the, the audacity of this child. I remember once she walked into um, the living room, uh, which we were enjoying until, until she entered, and um, <laughs> she was probably two or three years old, and they, like light switches were fascinating, and she was playing with the light switch, you know, and watching the lights, oh, that's really neat, you know. And so we took Grace, don't play with the light switch, honey. You know, you're, you start out sweet, right? You're like, don't play with the light switch, sweetie, right? And, which means nothing to them, right? I was like, 
And so you just kept going, and then you get a little more stern. Grace, please don't play with the light switch. And, you know, then you start like making things up. It's going to mess it up. It's not going to, you know, whatever. You're going to break the light or something. And then you get more stern. Grace, I'm, this is your father speaking, right? As if she didn't know. Uh, stop messing with the light switch. You're going to be in trouble. And I remember clear as day, this is exactly what she did. She looked me straight in the eye and reached over. The light switch. Who taught her that? Right? I mean, maybe her mom a little bit. I can say that because she's not here. Uh, no, nobody teaches them that. They, they come by it naturally. We're born with the need to trespass inside of us. It's in our nature. The very fact that Jude would even say in verse 24... To present you blameless suggests we're facing a real problem. We carry blame with us. And the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have a desperate need for holiness. It's our primary need, in fact. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is an insurmountable problem. It is as insurmountable as God is holy. And he is three times holy, perfectly holy holy. I don't know if you know much about the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe everything you learned about it was from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, if you take the lid off, your face melts. There's biblical source behind that, not, not necessarily the face melting, but just the idea that the trifle with the sacred results in death, right? There's actually biblical stories that kind of align with this idea. Right? Biblically speaking, the ark is a sacred symbol of God's presence with his people. It was in sort of a transportable altar type form, emblematic of God's very glory. The children of Israel carried around with awe and care as their way of taking God's tangible glory with them wherever they went. And God was so serious about his glory that if anyone touched the ark, they were in violation of his purity. There's this little story, in fact, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of First Chronicles, First Chronicles 13, the Israelites are transporting the ark, and they've already diminished God's holiness because it's supposed to be carried uh, across poles that are held across the shoulders of priests, but they put it on an ox cart to make it more efficient, I suppose. And the oxen stumble, and the ark slips, and there's this guy named Uzzah, and he basically just tries to stop it from falling to the ground, and he reaches out to catch it, and as soon as he touches it, boom, he is stricken dead. That's how serious God is about his holiness. And the fellow, Uzzah, his name, get this, irony of all ironies, there's no coincidences in Scripture, Uzzah means strength. That's how strong he turned out to be compared to the almighty righteousness of God. The holiness of God is nothing to trifle with. And there's two ways we typically trifle with it. We either openly violate it, engaging in sin that we know offends God, in effect looking him in the eye and flipping the switch he tells us not to flip. Or, or sometimes just as bad, but deceptively so for Christians, we think the holiness is manageable achievable. 
We hear Jesus say, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we think, yeah, I, I could do that. I could pull that off. At least in our hearts. A couple of years ago, I was in Washington State for a speaking engagement and was being driven to my hotel by a Muslim um, Uber driver and um, began to share the gospel with him by his prompting. I just, I was tired. I just wanted the quiet ride. He was starting to proselytize me with Islam. And I thought, okay, I guess we're doing it now. You got to, you didn't know you had a preacher in the car. Um, And so he pulled me into the conversation, but I found it really fascinating because as he learned that I was in his mind, a man of God, he began to kind of puff me up in a way because I'm trying to talk to him about how we cannot achieve God's holiness. We fall short of God's holiness. And he, his view of, of his God, is God was one that is holy, but one whose holiness you somehow merit through your hard work and your attentive religion. And as I began to downplay that, he started to kind of puff me up. He's like, no, I know you're a good man. I know that you're a good man. You're a man of God. You're a holy man. And so I began to ask him about how do you even achieve this holiness? And he spoke of this great bridge that is, uh, you know, on the way to God. And so we march along this bridge as we do our good works and we obey God and follow the right religion and all these, all these things. You're crossing this bridge. But he, he had mentioned at some point that there's a point where um, you, you don't even know if you're going to make it across because God could at any moment, by his own discretion, just sort of knock you off the bridge if he so chooses. I thought, well, that doesn't sound very secure. And it doesn't sound like the God I know who would forgive, perhaps, if you were repentant. I said, what happens if you get it to the end of the bridge? You get on the the other side. Even if you got to the, the end of the bridge and stood before God, you still have no promise of forgiveness. I was in the other Washington, Washington, D.C. once, and I had a Muslim cab driver who had what appeared to be a high view of God's holiness as well. He said, you know, if I steal from you, uh, God can forgive me because I can pay you back or make restitution in some other way. I can make amends and God can forgive me. But there are some things God can't forgive. He said, if I murder you, and at that point my ears perked up, of course. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, just murder, you say. Uh, he said, if I murder you, God can't forgive me because I can't make restitution. I can't. I thought this, that's really fascinating because on one level he has a very high view of of God's holiness, that God is so holy that he takes some sins, at least in this fellow's mind, extremely seriously. But in his own economy of religion, he thought the way that you merit that, earn that favor with God is by somehow achieving it. It didn't make any kind of logical or religious sense to me. See, holiness by your own works is an embrace of judgment. Jesus will, in fact, say to some, many will come to me at the end and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z in your name? We're super religious. And he will say, depart from me. I have no idea who you are. Just as Uzzah was stricken dead for trifling with God's holiness, those who reject or demean the holiness of God with their lives will be subject to death forever in the fires of hell. Hell is a real place that real people go to. It is a place of unending torment for those who reject Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And some will say, how could a good God allow such a place? 
And we will say, how could a good God not? If He is perfectly good, if He is perfectly good, if His goodness is just and right and perfect, then punishment for the wicked makes perfect sense. An unholy God wouldn't care about justice. But a holy God cannot violate His holiness. So yes, there is a hell, and its flames are as hot as God is holy. And the pain is as agonizing as God is righteous. And the torment will last as long as God is eternal. We should never think that our puny attempts at religion will keep us out of it. It is the wrath owed to every person born in sin. It is the wrath owed to each of us. And to avoid it, you must be blameless. Blameless. Not mostly good. Blameless. How? How do we manage that? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. He is able. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He comes to take the condemnation from us upon Himself. At the cross, He receives the full brunt of the wrath of God. The holiness of God manifest in justice, in punishment, poured out in the hell of the cross upon the sinless Lamb of God. And if you want to avoid God's wrath, you must have Christ take it for you. There is no other way. Either He takes it or you take it. Repent of your sin and put your faith in Him and His perfection becomes yours. His holiness becomes yours. His righteousness becomes yours. His blamelessness becomes yours. And His status as an heir of God becomes yours. This is the only way. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. You are not able. He is able. You cannot make a way. God makes a way. Where your sin would condemn you, God sends His Son to take the blame. And then when you stand before Him at the end of days, ready to be judged, you don't say, here are my works. Surely, surely I've done something that would merit my entry. You say, I am a great sinner. I do not deserve to be here, but I have a great Savior, and He took my place so that where He is, I can be also. If you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, when you stand before His presence, you will be full of great joy, not dread, joy. Why? Because Jesus is your Savior. He has done what you could not do, and He gives it to you. Only believe. The thing that ought to create terror because of the qualifying work of Jesus becomes the source of indomitable joy. All of your sin nailed to the cross, forgiven forever because of Jesus. And now we are seeing why satisfaction of God is so worthy of God. Why absolute worship of God is worthy of God. Because God alone gives spiritual security. God alone eternally forgives. And thirdly and finally, only God is God. Only God is God. 
I love that these two verses, essentially it's the shape of a prayer, it's a doxology, words of belief, words of worship, an ascription of glory to God, to the only God, verse 25, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. For Christ to be Lord means Christ must be in control. He keeps us from stumbling. He qualifies us as blameless. And so Jude is ascribing him his due. Each of these uh, uh, nouns sort of corresponds to uh, Christ's sonship, to his, his deity. He gets glory, so he gets all the credit. We give him majesty, or we ascribe him majesty because he has all the beauty. We ascribe him dominion because he has all the control. We ascribe him authority because he has all the power. It behooves us in, in, in response to this to ask ourselves very honestly, sincerely, self-reflectively, how satisfying is God to me? How satisfying is He to me? Jude 24 and 25 is a reminder of the centrality of God's glory and a prophetic calling us to look to Christ alone as worthy of our worship. It's a reminder that everything that's come before in Jude's letter is culminating in adoration of our conquering Redeemer. In fact, all of the talk that Jude has of of false teaching, that's kind of the primary impetus of the letter, is is to put them on guard against heresy and doctrinal error and to warn them about those who teach it and, and perpetrate it. And so he's commending doctrinal soundness. But this is a warning to us as well through the prayer. You can get all of your theology straightened out, but it will merit you nothing if you don't worship Jesus. The demons have good theology, but they don't have a heart for Jesus. And you and I were wired for worship. We're not just brains on sticks. We have hearts. We have souls that are worthy to be given to God. And this is why we find ourselves drawn to so many different things to fill our lives, because we're wired for affection, for worship. The Bible calls that idolatry if it's given to anything but God. Only God can ultimately satisfy because only God is God. A spouse or a child cannot be God. Good grades or getting into a good college or getting the right job cannot be God. Making money or making the team or getting the promotion or making art cannot be God. Not even your religious effort or your spirituality can be God. And when you put the weight of God on something or someone that isn't God, you end up crushing them. And in the end, crushing yourself under the weight of your idolatry. Only God is God. Your worship, your doxology should not be directed anywhere else. Made in God's image to reflect his glory, we were created, John Piper says, as mirrors at 45 degree angles, meant to receive the unhindered radiance of God's glory and reflect it back up and out. But when a mirror is turned upside down, it doesn't reflect the light, right? The light hits it and it casts a shadow. And so in all idolatry, we are worshiping a shadow cast by God's glory rather than God himself. And Jude has been showing us, previous to this, the context, some really black shadows. Consider verses 10 through 13. 
These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. But even this darkness, even the darkness Jude is showing us here and that he's been showing us before we get to the doxology tells us something about the light. In our back turning to God's radiance, we have put our noses to the ground, chasing like sniffing dogs after scents and wisps of promise that don't deliver. But if in repentance we would turn our mirrors back to the source of the great light, what would we see? In stark contrast to this darkness, at each of its points stands Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, in the brightness of his eternal excellence. So, instead of dangerously hidden reefs, we see the visible rock of refuge, the rock higher than ourselves, the stone carved from the mountain that smashes kingdoms, according to Daniel 2, the strong tower and safe refuge, according to the Psalms, the rock upon which, if we are shipwrecked, it's for our good and security. Instead of self-centered shepherds, we see the good shepherd who cares for the sheep at all times, who feeds the sheep even of his own flesh. We see the glory of God, not in some thin, vaporous mist, but in the pillar of cloud leading the sons of God through the wilderness, the cloud full and brimming with living water. We see the commander of the winds, the sender and the stopper of them. And instead of fruitless trees, we see the true vine in whom there is life abundant, who was once dead, now uprisen in glory and vindication. Instead of being swept along by the wild waves of the sea, we see he who walks upon the waves and calms the storms. And instead of wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, we see the bright morning star the blazing sun of righteousness, for whom the brightness of brightest glory has been reserved forever. How great is the light that casts the shadow. To him is all glory, all the credit, all majesty, all the beauty, all the dominion, which means all the control, all the authority, which means all the power. And this is brought to bear in Jude 24. God is the one who keeps us from falling away, so he gets all the glory. He's the one who provokes great joy, so he has all the majesty. It's his presence that he brings us into, so he has all dominion. It's his holiness that we have violated, but his pardon that puts us before him blameless, so he has the authority. Not to be activated by you, but to be recognized by you. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ is immense in his holiness and splendor and saving power. Repent and believe in him today because even Christians can be feeble, half-hearted, unglorious creatures following our instincts, believing in stupid superstitions and silly sentimentalities, disobeying every day. How satisfied are you in God? You ask the question honestly. Only a fool would say, totally satisfied. Not a bit of me is held back from God ever. Is that true? Do you know you don't even know half the sinner that you are? 
You who have put your faith in Jesus, can I just ask you, how many times have you boasted or gloried in your own wisdom or ingenuity? How many times have you gloried in your accomplishments or experiences? How many times have you neglected loving your parents or your siblings or your children or your classmates or your friends or your church? How many times have you broken a promise? How many times have you thought thoughts of God not worthy of God? How many times have you ignored reading your Bible or neglected prayer? How many times have you come into church with a negative attitude, negative thoughts and feelings? How many times have you gossiped or shamed someone? How many times have you lost your temper or lusted after someone in your heart or given into greed or to gluttony or been lazy? How many times have you disrespected authority figures in your life? How many times have you chased countless poisonous idols of approval and validation? How many times have you just flat out disobeyed God over and over and over again and you stand before God in the presence of his perfect eternal holiness to be judged for those things and what do you think he's going to say to you? blameless. Blameless. Staggering. Blameless. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Only God can do this. You and I are not God. Only God is God. And in the end, We come to love God, not simply for his benefits, as wonderful as they are, but for his very being, because, as C.S. Lewis says, we don't just love God because God exists, we love because this God exists. We don't just end up loving what God has done, we love who God is. He alone is God. He is so worthy of your worship, your adoration, your attention, your love, your devotion, your whole life. Because he's given his for you. To him alone be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. What shall we say to this declaration? Jude says, Amen. Amen means it is so, or may it be. And may it be today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, these truths do not make sense to our flesh. They do not make sense to our religious calculus. They're counterintuitive. In fact, many times we find it foolish, as your servant Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness. This isn't the way the world works, which is why every other religion in the world, Islam or otherwise, preaches works justification and only Christianity coming from the one true God, you, Heavenly Father, preaches that we must be made right by grace. So I thank you, Father, for your grace. So immense and free coming out of the great love that you are, not just that you have, but that you are in your Trinitarian self. And I thank you that it overflows even to a sinner like me. We have what we have and we are who we are because of you. Help us to love you more. Strengthen those who believe in their faith. Give them a greater sense of affection for your son. We thank you for this conviction of the spirit who brings the comfort of the gospel And we thank you there is no condemnation for those who are in your son. 
It's in his name we pray these things, the great name of Christ Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.